0: Well, good morning. We are going to be in the book of Acts, so if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. If you don't have a real, like, actual paper Bible, raise your hand. Like, none of this technology swiping. Like, we need to hear the, the actual pages in your fingers. Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. So it's a, it's a little bit of a larger section, so you will very much be helped if you have your Bibles opened as we go through those two chapters. Uh, if you're anything like me, you love a good underdog story. My favorite movie, I think, is the movie Rudy. All right? Ladies, if you want to see your man cry... Rudy, all right? Right? But, but it's not just Rudy, is it? Right? Disney has made a financial killing on telling underdog stories. So we've got the Mighty Ducks, right? You remember that 90s hit movie, The Mighty Ducks? And really, when you think about it, the plot structure of those underdog stories is, is simply this, right? You take either one or multiple outcasts Right, multiple people on the sort of outskirts, the, the the person who's not an insider, and you kind of put them together, and they accomplish something great, right? And, and so, as it relates to the Mighty Ducks, right, you've got all these outcasts. As it relates to hockey, they can't even skate. You put them together, and they accomplish something great. That that's the sort of formula of the underdog story. You take an outsider, an outcast, and you see them accomplish great things. Uh, if you didn't know, actually, they rebooted the Mighty Ducks franchise, and there's a new series, and they're not even kind of, uh, like, hiding what they're doing. The, the new team name is the Don't Bothers. Right? You couldn't get a more underdog name than the Don't Bothers. Now, why, why, why do all people, I think, generally speaking, like a good underdog story? I've got a theory. I think It's because on one level, all of us from time to time feel like an underdog. All of us from time to time feel uh, like we're an outsider. We feel like we are an outcast, don't we? We feel like we don't fit in. We feel like we're, we're on the outside looking in. Or to quote kind of the, the pop sociologists, we have imposter syndrome. Well, I don't, I don't think it's just a few of us. I think most people from time to time struggle with some level of imposter syndrome, some level of feeling like an outsider, feeling like an outcast, like we don't measure up, we don't fit in, we're not good enough, we don't have our life together enough. We're imposters, in outcasts. And yet something happens in, in the sort of midst of our feeling like outsiders. At the same time, we want to belong, don't we? We want to be on the inside. We want to be in the know. This is why we form cliques, right? Like a clique is just a, a group of people who feel like outsiders, who feel like uh, they're, they're outcasts, and they all come together so that they can feel some semblance of belonging. Well, this morning we, we, we have a group of stories that are grouped thematically because all of these characters, they're all outcasts. There's, it's sort of three underdog stories. Three insiders that through miraculous means become, three, sorry, outsiders who through miraculous means become insiders. That's the sort of theme that connects this whole section together. Now, some are going to be outsiders because of, uh, of social reasons. Some because of moral reasons. Others because of physical reasons. But, but you're going to notice that in each of these stories, they're outsiders. They're outcasts. And God does something miraculous. God brings them into his kingdom. And really, basically, that's the point of these two chapters. The the big idea is going to be behind me. The big idea is simply this. That God, he builds his kingdom by bringing in outcasts. That's what God does. The the first outcast we're going to see that God brings in is the spiritual outcast. The second is the physical outcast. And then third is the sort of moral outcast. So so, so look at chapter 8, verse 1. We'll just read the first three verses. This is the kind of introduction to this whole section. And Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen that we read about last week. So so remember, we've got persecution that happened because of Stephen. Stephen is killed, he's martyred, and they scatter. That's how God kind of kicks the early church out of Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea. It's all through persecution. And so this whole section is actually bracketed by this persecution. If you actually flip over to chapter 9, the last verse we're going to look at in verse 31, we read this. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee uh, Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the question is, how do you go from Saul and and all these people persecuting the church, imprisoning the church, to chapter 9, verse 31, the church is being built up, and there's peace. It's multiplying. How do you get that? How is God going to accomplish that? And the answer is right in the middle. He's going to do it in the most unlikely of ways. We're going to notice that if God were to go on Shark Tank and pitch his business model about how he's going to build the church, build the kingdom, no one would invest in his building plan. It's sort of crazy because he's going to take the outcasts and he's going to bring them in and it's through those, those individuals and those people that he's going to build His church. And let me just say, this is wonderful news. Because all of us are outcasts. All right? Chapter 8, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for he, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles At Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord they return to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the villages of Samaria. We will stop there. So, just kind of to summarize, right? We've got the early church, and they're scattered. And we've got Philip, who is scattered to Samaria. We learned of Philip in chapter 6. He is an early deacon in the church. And he's sent to Samaria because of this persecution But but he's not. If if you go back to um, chapter eight, it's not like he just goes into Samaria, the region of Samaria, which is north of Israel. It's that he goes to the Samaria, which is the capital of Samaria. So 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 there he is, the the capital of Samaria, and he begins to preach and teach, and he's really effective, isn't he? Right. There's joy. People are converted. People are baptized. Now, now who, who are these Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans are those who, after the, the, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern tribe, the tribe of Israel, you had the northern and southern tribe, you have Judah to the south, Israel to the north, and so in 500-something B.C., right? That's very precise, but it's 500-something. You have Assyria, and they sack um, Israel, and they take them off into captivity. And then about 150 years later, you have the Babylonians doing that to the southern tribe of Judah. But, but there's a difference between how uh, those in the north and those in the south interacted with both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. You see, when Judah was brought into captivity in Babylon... They didn't intermarry. But to the north, Israel, they did intermarry. They intermarried into the Assyrians and the Cushites. And so when they got, came back into the land, they were what we now call the Samaritans. And Israel hated them, right? They were, to the Jewish people, they were sort of half-breeds. They were syncretistic. They were not ethnically pure. They weren't true Jews, and so there's animosity. If you go to Luke's first le, uh, first book, the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 17, we see that Jesus heals a bunch of lepers, and one of them is a Samaritan. And the Samaritan comes back, and the Samaritan is referred to as a foreigner. That's how the Samaritans were thought of; they were they were foreigners. That they, they were despised. they had alternative ways of, uh, of worshiping. They, they had alternative temples. They were the other, unclean, spiritually defiled, right? It's no wonder when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, right? The disciples are like, what are you doing? You, you can't do that. That's a Samaritan woman. She's an outcast. You can't, you can't talk with her. And so Philip goes out into Samaritan because of this persecution and he's preaching the word, he's teaching people about Jesus, and he's doing that because that's what the apostles did, right? He, he's just doing that which the apostles taught him to do. So, so what he received from the apostles about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he just begins to gossip about in Samaria. What he received from the apostles, he then just gives to the Samaritan. And I think it's just interesting just by way of application to notice that, that here's Philip, a deacon, and he goes out into Samaria and he goes out preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so it's not just the apostle's job to spread the gospel. It's not just the early church's job. It's not just the preacher's job. No, it's, it's all those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ are commissioned to you know, do Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right? Proclaim a testimony of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what it all means. But we see just as success and joy and revival is breaking out, right, not all is well in Samaria, right? We have Harry Potter in Samaria, right? We've got the Harry Houdini. We've got Simon the Magician, and it's a problem, right? Simon's a magician and he has always amazed people with his power, right? He's got power and he knows power when he's seen power. He's, he, I don't know if it's sleight of hand or whatever, but all we know is that he made his living on doing magic tricks. And so he's seeing people converted, and so it looks like Simon too has been converted. And you instantly go, I want to hear that guy's testimony, right? From sorcerer to surrender, right? You can just imagine that, like, you know, on the billboard of a church, like, hear the testimony of a sorcerer who has surrendered to Jesus. He's even baptized. And so at this point, as the gospel is just bursting at the seams in Samaria, Peter and John, John hear about it, verse 14, two apostles, and they're like, we got to go to Samaria, now, what we have in verses 14 to 17, it's unprecedented. And it's really confusing, right? Because C- it looks like they believe, they're baptized, and then the Spirit comes later, okay? It's really confusing. And let me just say, this is unprecedented in redemptive history, okay? This is like a squishing of what really is going on. It's not normative. Really, when you think about it, that the Samaritans who are Sort of the other. They're the syncretistic. They're spiritually defiled. No one believes that the Samaritans could be in God's kingdom. Right? They are at best second class citizens. So what the early church needs is witnesses. They need validation. And so they send the apostles. And they need the ultimate validation about the Samaritans. They need the seal of the Spirit. And that's what we see here. right? The the, the Spirit falls and descends and seals the reality that the Samaritans are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are, just like the Jews in Jerusalem, they are, they're just citizens. And yet, Simon, the magician, well, he, he... he knows power, and he wants this power, right? The, the Spirit descends, and if his whole, like, probably his, his, his theory about all this is, if you can't beat him, join him. And so he goes to the disciples and says, okay, I see that power, you laid hands, the Spirit descended, it was, it was amazing, I want in, I've got this money, I'm wealthy, can I buy that power? And Peter rebukes him, doesn't he? Verse 22. But notice something. Simon is not rebuked. Simon is not called to repent of his Samaritan-ness. If we can call it that. That's not why he's rebuked. It's not outward. It's not that he's a Samaritan that he's rebuked. It's not that he was even a magician that he's being rebuked. He's... Rebuked because of his heart. Look there in verse 24. Verse 22. Or sorry, verse 21. Your heart is not right with God. Simon, the magician, we can call him that. You, you know, he, he then kind of responds in a very ambiguous way, doesn't he? And you're kind of left wondering, is this true repentance or is this not? And the answer is, we don't really know. Church history would tell us that this guy becomes one of the biggest persecutors of the early church. So in that sense, it looks like, no, he never did repent. And actually, the sin of Simon here actually makes its way all throughout church history. During the Reformation, there was a thing called uh, simony which was a, a kind of a word or phrase where you could actually buy a church office. And the reformer, Martin Luther, hated it. It still kind of, I think, crops up from time to time, right? Power plus money with, under the little guise of Christianity. Don't, don't we see that sometimes in some Pentecostal churches? It's just simony in another form. And yet... Though Simon tried to buy the Spirit, he can't contain it, can he? He can't buy the Spirit. It's just spreading all throughout Samaria to the outcasts. Now, we sort of don't have Samaritans with us now. Those, those people who are the other Like, it it makes sense to us that we're like, no, no, no. Of of course the Samaritans can be in the kingdom of God. All those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ can be in the kingdom of God. But but this is a really hard thing. And I think if we're being honest, the church is not exempt from this. There are people who we are like, "Mm, yeah, but not them. In the 80s or 90s, I think that the church really struggled with those who contracted HIV, and we're like, no, no, they, they, they can't be in the kingdom of God. Um, if you didn't know sort of how the Calvary Chapel movement started, it, it started sort of in the Jesus movement. And the Jesus movement was actually a reaction, and what made Calvary Chapels really successful, especially in California, is it was a refugee for those who had been left wanting during the sexual revolution. And so they're welcome in, even with that past. I'm, I'm guessing in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we are going to find refugee after refugee from the LGBTQ community. And there are going to be refugees. And the question that we have is, will we bring them in and say, if you trust, if, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are welcome here, even in the midst of your past. Well, the Samaritans, they were the defiled ones, the socially uncleaned. And yet the spirit had washed them and they are brought in God's kingdom. Simon gets this right. When the gospel is preached, when Jesus is preached, there's power. And the power we see here is the first group of people, the Samaritans, the outcasts, the social outcasts, the sort of spiritual outcasts, They're brought in. But now second, let's look at the second story. This this is a story not about spiritual or social outcasts. This is about a physical outcast. Look at chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like, like a lamb before it shears the silence, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from him on the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch says, see, here is some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip, once again, verse 26, by sort of angelic power, he, he, you know, scene change, right? This is like a movie, right? The, The scene is cut and now we've got the second scene. And now he moves from the north to the south. And he's on the road to Gaza. And he meets a man. He meets, verse 27, an Ethiopian man. Now, don't think modern-day Ethiopia. Okay, what, what this would be is, think more northern Sudan. And then just, let's just kind of go through the descriptions of this man. He, he's Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. Meaning that he's been physically deformed, defiled. And if you're wondering, well, why? Well, just keep reading, right? He, he is a high-ranking official of the queen. That's why. This was very, very uh, prevalent, right? If you wanted to make sure and protect the, the, the royalty, the princesses, you'd, you'd put around men who were castrated so that you would protect those women. We know that he's he works in royalty. He's sort of the treasurer of this royal dynasty. and And we know that he's learned. He can read. We know that he's got wealth, right? He has a scroll of Isaiah. Expensive. Hard to get. And he's a worshiper of God, right? He had just come back from Jerusalem having worshipped God. Now, that's a lot of characteristics, right? That's a a lot of of descriptions of his identity. But there is one identity that is the most important that Luke wants us to see. And it's not that he's Ethiopian. It's not that he's even a worshiper of God. He's described this, and then every time he's referenced after this, he's called one word. He's called a eunuch. That is the most important identity to this story. He's a eunuch. And as this eunuch, this man, is on his chariot coming back from Jerusalem, he's reading a portion of Isaiah. We read that. Ben read that earlier. He's reading Isaiah 53. But he's got a problem. He's reading it, but he has no idea what it means. It could mean one of two things to him, and he's curious what it means. And so here comes Philip, and Philip is told that he needs to go explain Isaiah 53 to this man. And so he goes. Now, why is he so concerned with Isaiah 53? Well, there's a particular reason. You you see, in the Old Covenant, if you were physically deformed, including those who were eunuchs, Deuteronomy tells us that they are cut off from worship in the temple they can't be in the assembly of the temple they were outsiders they were the outcasts he he was you could spiritually defective and so he's reading Isaiah 53 as an outsider saying there's this, this prophecy about the suffering servant who would come but but he de- doesn't just have Isaiah 53 in mind he actually has Isaiah 56 also in mind. You see, if you go to Isaiah 56, verse 5, we read these words. The Lord says to the eunuchs, just three chapters after Isaiah 53, the Lord says to the eunuchs that to him I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than son and daughter. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. You see, what that prophecy in Isaiah 53 is saying, is saying there will come a day when even the eunuch the deformed right the, the, the socially unclean that they won't be cut off from the assembly of God's people and so he has Isaiah 53 and he's saying okay is, is this just talking about the prophet Isaiah or is this talking about the coming one who will come and when that coming suffering servant comes then I will be brought back into God's people That's the question that he asks in verse 35. And so Philip, right? I mean, Slim, talk talk about an opportunity to preach the gospel, right? So what does Philip do? Well, he just simply tells them about Jesus. He tells them all about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I mean, there couldn't be an easier place to get to Jesus than Isaiah 53, right? And so he does that, right? He, he, He tells... This eunuch, yes, you have, because of not just your physical deformity, but you are spiritually deformed in your sin. But because of Jesus Christ, you can be brought back into the kingdom of God if you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And he tells him that. He he tells him about God sending Jesus to save the outcasts. That is the gospel. The the gospel isn't you got to clean yourself up. You got to hide your deformity or you need to fix your deformity. No. Our greatest deformities aren't external. Our greatest deformities are internal. And Jesus Christ has cleansed us. And he died to bring in even the eunuchs. Well, you can imagine how ecstatic this eunuch is, right? Always on the outside, looking in, and now he's been told that he's an insider. He can have a relationship with Jesus. He can worship with God's people. He is not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. He's actually one of them, a son and daughter of King Jesus. And so he goes, what's keeping me from being baptized? I mean, don't you love this? I mean, some ways in our sort of modern culture, we think of baptism as that, that extra credit you get on the paper, right? Like, do I have to, whatever? Not this Ethiopian uh, eunuch, right? He's like, yes, please. I want to put on the team jersey, which is what baptism is. Baptism is saying, I, I, I want to put on the team jersey. I want to, to identify with Jesus and his people publicly so that everyone can see that I'm with Jesus. No longer would he be, his identity be of the royal house of Candace or of a wealthy man, or of a treasurer, or as a eunuch. That was not no longer his identity. He's saying, my identity is going to be Jesus. And so he's baptized by Philip in the name of the God who has brought this outcast in. And the story sort of fades away, right? Like, Like a good movie, it just sort of fades, and Philip is just kind of wished away. And the eunuch is just skipping off, never to be heard of again. In his joy he's met Jesus. For 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 much of his life the eunuch, right, he he worshipped as at best a second class citizen, but no longer. Now, 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 we know that that's not true, right? We we know, and we 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 hear Paul's words that, that there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, that there's there's no male or female, but 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 all are one in Christ. Like we, we know that to be true. And yet, if you've been in a church long enough, sometimes, based on things in our life, many things that we've never even that, that are not even our fault, or 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 we have no control after. We can feel like second-class citizens. Maybe you can't have biological children. And it just feels like, because of that reality, you're just second-class in the church. Or maybe it's, you're single and you think, oh, well, if I were married or had a family, then I would be really a part of the church. I mean, there's, there's lots of, of them. Or maybe it's a, a physical or mental uh, disability, and think, "Well, if I just didn't have that, then I'd be a full member, a full participant. I wouldn't be a second class member of the Kingdom of God." And yet, that's not the reality. And l- let me just encourage you that that I think one of the, by way of application, one of, one of the wonderful things about church membership is is to do much of what Philip has done. You see, what Philip did is he saw someone who was an outsider and he told him, you can be an insider. I think that's what a a good, healthy member does. Just has eyes to see people who might feel like they're outsiders, outcasts, and say, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to bring you into the church. I'm going to introduce you to people. I want you to feel like you are one of us. That's what a church does. It does what Philip does. Brings people in who who might feel walking in or might feel based on things in their lives, based on external things, might feel like I'm a second class or or, or at least I'm an outsider or I don't relate or I don't fit in. And what we should all be doing is saying, God, give me eyes to see those people, those men and women, those families, those individuals, and help me to take a step of faith and bring them in and to remind them that they are through Christ a son and daughter of the king. Well, lastly, let's let's look at this last outcast story. We've got the, the sort of spiritual outcast, the Samaritans, the physical outcast, the eunuch. Now, now let's look at the moral outcast, Saul, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. Uh, to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority over the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came as sent to me, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and for those who call upon his name? And he had not yet here, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confronted, uh, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, and their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attended to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them that on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and now at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when he And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So here, starting in chapter 9, we have a flashback in time, right? So it's like Philip's doing his thing and it's like, meanwhile, back in, you know, Jerusalem, we've got Saul, who would later be renamed Paul. And Saul, we were introduced to in chapter 6, right? Or chapter 7. Saul is the man who's standing, holding coats for those who are stoning Stephen to death. So, so, so Saul is, like, worse than those who are casting stones. Right? He's like He's like the godfather. He's like, I won't even get my hands dirty. I'll just hold the coats while I just enjoy the show. That's Saul. And so he goes to the high priest. He's like, I want papers. I want, like... Papers so that wherever I go, if I find anyone belong, belonging to the way, which is another uh, way of describing any of those who, 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 are, who are Christians, right? Those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus, he's like, I, I want papers so that I can kind of round them up, bring them to Jerusalem, so they can experience the same fate of Stephen. And so he's breathing threats. He's described as a murderer, verse 1. He's got blood on his hands. Ananias would later describe to him as evil. He is morally defiled. Even though he doesn't think he is at this point, right? He, he thinks he's just zealous. He, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He is purging Judaism of this heretical teaching. So, so he thinks he's upright in doing this. But on a road to Damascus, everything is flipped on its head, isn't it, right? Something amazing happens. A light. And Saul falls on the ground and he hears a voice. Right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul asks the answer a question like, who are you, Lord? And Saul gets his answer. Right? It's, it, it's I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And everything for Saul clicks. Right, It was not this group that were the heretics. It was him. Jesus is alive. Jesus is God. He had been seeking to destroy this truth, but it—it it was him and his belief that needed to be destroyed. And not only that, but but I've always thought this is really interesting. That that when you think about it naturally, you know, Jesus says, uh, who are you?" It's it's me who you are persecuting, and, and the natural thing is like. Saul's not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting the church. And yet, what we see here is that Jesus so aligns himself with the Christian, Jesus so aligns himself with the church, that an attack on the church, an attack on the church is an attack on Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That is how unified you are by the Spirit of God to Jesus Christ, that when someone attacks you, when someone persecutes you, when someone says something against you, it's an attack on God himself. Well, Saul, he's seen Jesus, hasn't he? And having seen Jesus, he sees nothing else, right? He's now blind. And so he goes to Damascus, he waits three days, he's, he's, he's praying and he's fasting. And so now the, 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 a voice comes to Ananias and says, you need to go and meet this Saul, pray for him, restore his sight, And then commission him into ministry. And Ananias, he's a holy man. He's not an idiot, right? He's heard of Saul. He's like, no way in the world am I going. Like, this is a trap. I'm going to get murdered. He's got papers. No way. But the Lord assures him, it's no trap. And so he goes, right? the, the, The safest place. It's always the will of God, isn't it? Even if experience or logic tells you otherwise. And so he goes. He heals Saul. Saul receives the spirit. And he's commissioned in ministry. And so he retreats for three years. And he sort of reappears in verse 23. And the hunter now becomes the hunted. Notice that, right? He who hunted the early Christians is now being hunted. Because he's a Christian. He escapes death a few times, verse 24. And then something happens, right? He, he's in Jerusalem, and the early church goes, uh, we know Saul, we, we know what he did in the past. There's no way we're, we're going to let him in amongst our community, right? right? Have you ever see, heard those testimonies, right? N- none of those men or women, you, you know, what their lives are, and then you hear that they're a Christian, you're like, your sort of inner critic comes out, and you're like, not that guy right not that woman well that's Saul and yet Barnabas verse 27 speaks up for him and said I vouch for him Barnabas says nope he's good he's one of us and so Saul goes preaches the gospel with amazing results I think Barnabas is amazing in this, in this part of the story because here you have Saul, this, this moral and ethical outcast who is, as Ananias uh, describes him as, who's evil, doing evil things. And Barnabas sees a diamond in the rough, doesn't he? My guess is if you're a leader in this church, right? If you're an elder, if you're a deacon, a Bible study leader, a youth leader, a music leader, any leader... My guess is at one point in your life, someone saw potential in you. Even when you might not have seen potential in yourself. And someone came and put their arm around you. An older man, an older woman, and said, I'm going to take a chance on you. I see something in you. That's what Barnabas does. And I think the the longer you walk with Jesus, the longer you're in a church church, Sometimes you can get bit by that, right? You, you can roll the dice on someone and it just doesn't go well and so you can begin to, to be jaded. But I think all leaders have this in common. They're always trying to reproduce themselves and they're always taking a chance. So I just encourage you by way of the example of Barnabas, take a chance on someone. That, that diamond in the rough, that, that person who, might, who you think, I think they've got potential. And roll the spiritual dice. Because that was Saul. I mean, Saul would not be the kind of guy who you'd give the Bible study over to. And that he was the exact instrument in which God would use in order to accomplish his redemptive accomplishments. Saul was the man who didn't deserve God's grace, but God gave it anyways. He didn't look like the man for the job, but he was. He had blood on his hands, and yet he was the person God would use in order to advance his kingdom. He was the one perfectly suited for this season in church history to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish. Saul was an outsider. He was now cast But God, by his power, by his grace, by his mercy, by the power of his spirit, he makes Saul an insider let me just say, God continues to do that. That is what the church is. The church is not a bunch of people who are insiders who just worship God. No, they are a bunch of outsiders who, by God's grace, have been brought in. I remember I was uh, having a conversation with a regional director for church planting at a big denomination. And this was years and years ago because I was thinking about planting a church. And so this man, as I was sitting with, he said, okay, what's your plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to gather people? What's, what are the programs you're going to put in place? How are, you going to, how are you going to win people? How are you going to build the church? I remember telling him, I don't think you're going to like my strategy. And he said, well, what is it? Like, are you going to be a missional church? Are you going to be a seeker church? He gave me all these, like, lists of, of ways in which you can build the church. And I said, I'm going to preach the gospel and pray. He said, I think that's a bit naive. The conversation didn't go well because it was over dinner and I was stuck for another hour sitting next to him. But probably what I should have done is said, open up your Bible to Acts. Let me tell you how God built his church by taking a bunch of ragamuffins, outcasts, the unlikely in society, and saying, I'm going to bring you in. And that's what he continues to do. Have great expectation. God continues to bring in the outcasts. That's how he builds his church. Starting in the early church, right after Jesus' resurrection, all the way down in church history, God loves to use the most unlikely. Let's pray. God, we are, we, we are grateful for all that you're doing in and through our lives, and we pray, Lord, that we would have a deeper sense of of our unworthiness, but at the same time that we would find our worth in Jesus Christ, our identity in Jesus, and throw our lot in with him. We thank you for all that you're doing in and through our lives. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.